Amen. I feel like we're close enough, so I'm just going to say it. Merry Christmas. Now, I hope everyone has an excellent Christmas uh, this Sunday, regardless of how your week goes, uh, even if your furnace goes out tomorrow. Um, and, you know, if, you don't have a good, if we don't have a good furnace, we're about to find out in a six or seven hours. Um, you know, if we follow uh, the, the, the American understanding of what a good Christmas is or what a good Advent season is, or you've gotten your idea of Christmas from the front of a JCPenney catalog, then your family status or wealth or, uh, you know, different levels of discomfort in life may determine whether or not Sunday is a good Christmas. But if you know Jesus and you believe that 2,000 years ago, God became man and invaded enemy territory to become one of us and die in our place, then there is enough meaning and richness and joy you can extract out of that to have a Merry Christmas, regardless of our external circumstances in this very temporary world that we are in. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. My sermon tonight is the Magnificent which is uh, not a magnifying glass shaped as a cat, uh, but rather, I thought that was a pretty good joke, rather it is the song of Mary. And in Latin, the first word of the verse is magnify, which would be like English magnify. Uh, So it's called the Magnificat. Or if you don't like that title because uh, it sounds um, too upper crust or whatever, you can just call it the song of Mary. If you're taking notes, just write the Song of Mary as my uh, sermon title. But Luke chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 46 through 55 in just a moment. You know, uh, we, uh, it's it's natural for us to, as we try our best to keep track of time, to celebrate days that we care about. Um, If you know your birthday, uh, that's a big deal. Or if it's not a big deal to you, it's a big deal to people that care about you. Um, Your anniversary, if you're married, or maybe the anniversary of your first date, which I surprisingly remember, uh, which is really amazing because I have the memory of a, um, I don't know what I was going to (laughs) say. I don't have a great memory, so, but I remember the the first time that that me and Hannah went on a date. That's a special day that we remember uh, every year. Um, but we celebrate uh, moments that we care about often on an annual basis. And the reason we, we do that is because those things uh, make our life what it is. Uh, they're special. They're significant. Your, your birthday, your anniversary, maybe other days that are special to you that you remember or days about, uh, that, that concern people you care about. If you've ever been declared in remission of cancer, you probably remember the day. And you should. But as Christians, we kind of have our own calendar. Uh, There's Easter. There's Christmas. There's some other holidays that some Christians celebrate and some Christians don't, so I'm not going to mention them. And and, and some people around Easter and around Christmas will say, well, the resurrection is important to me all the time, or the birth of Jesus is important to me all the time, so why should I make a big deal about it once a year? Well, try telling your wife that when you don't buy her anything for the, your anniversary and see how that goes. It's okay to remember things once a year. And Christians have been doing this for a long time. So even though you know, the Bible doesn't tell us 
you have to buy a Christmas tree or you have to have a wreath on your door or you have to make uh, people desserts with lots of saturated fat. We still do some of those things because we talk about the coming of Jesus once a year as Christians have done for a very, very long time. Whatever the case, it's what we're thinking about. So tonight we're in Luke chapter 1. And Luke chapter 1 gives us, honestly, the most basic way for a believer in Jesus to celebrate the incarnation. Luke tells us how Mary responds to the incarnation. Now, Gabriel's already visited her. her. She's now went to Elizabeth. Elizabeth has given this prophecy because her husband can't talk. So now he's sitting there silently. Elizabeth is giving this prophecy, confirming everything that Mary has been told by the angel, that she is going to bring the Messiah into the world. And what Mary does in response, in her song, beginning in verse 46, Luke uses as an opportunity to show his readers how to think about the birth of Jesus. So that's what I'm going to try to do tonight for our church. So uh, look with me, if you would, in Luke chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 46 through 45. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath holpen, or helped, his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. The word of the Lord. Father, help us as we look to your word tonight. The things we don't have, please give us. And what we don't know yet, teach us. And then finally, Lord, what you want us to be, Use your word and its preaching to make us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Notice first, as we look at Mary's song, when we look at the first two verses, verses 46 and 47, that this song is a song of praise. Now, if you like listening to music, you know that every song has its own sort of theme. Every song has a message that it's trying to get across. And some songs are, it's harder to discern a theme than others. And if if there's a song that's really special to you, that you have memories associated with, you've memorized it for years, you probably know the gist of it. Like, you know what it's about. Well, Mary's song, like all songs, has a theme. And it's really easy to tell when we look at the first two verses. It is about praising God for what he's done. And this amazing news that he's given her, that she is going to be the one to carry Jesus into the world. She says, my soul doth magnify the Lord. That is, uh, my soul is making much of God 
as, as a magnifying glass, focuses in on something and makes it bigger. God is, is big to her. This is how she feels about the Lord after he has revealed this. And then she says, my spirit hath rejoiced in God, my Savior. So the magnifying describes her intent. I'm going to sing this song to make much of God. And that's what worship music is, is intended to do, right? That's why we sing as Christians when we gather together. Now, sometimes we like the songs. Sometimes you may not like the songs, but that's not really the point. The reason we sing as Christians is to focus our mind and our hearts on God and to make much of him. Not because we need to exaggerate who he is, but rather because in the absence of music and in the absence of worship, we mistakenly see him much smaller than he really is. So when we sing and when Mary gives us her song, um, it's not giving a distorted image of God by blowing it up times a thousand Rather, it's returning us to reality. And this is what the Psalms do. When you go and read like a Psalm of of praise where David says these amazing things about God and then you you take that Psalm and you pray it back to God and you meditate over it. You're not living in fantasy land by blowing up this image of God. Rather, you're seeing him for what he really is. Outside of praise, our view of God is distorted and, and shrunken and inaccurate. And Christians need the Psalms and the other songs in the Bible and even Christian songs being written today to return us back to reality. And that's what Mary's song does for us during Christmas. Not by exaggerating who God is, but by reminding us of who he's already been this whole time. She's magnifying the Lord. That's her intent. And then the rejoicing describes her mood. Her, her, her delighting in what she's doing. She's praising God. And, and this is her attitude while she's praising. While she's singing, she's, she's just full of delight in him. And that's because what you delight in is what you praise. If you enjoy uh, a movie, like a lot, then you'll catch yourself talking about it all the time. Even to your wife. After she is frustrated because you've been talking about it the last month and a half. If I sound autobiographical, it's uh, true. This is what happens with me and Hannah. I get obsessed with the movie and I cannot stop watching it and talking about it. I want to just explore every detail and I, I connect it to everything in my life. Why? I, why? Why do I keep praising it? Because I enjoy it. And when we focus on God enough and, and remember what God has done enough to really delight in him, to really rejoice in him, to find our joy in him and not in other things, we're going to catch ourselves praising. Because you praise what you delight in. And the rest of the song unpacks why Mary is delighting in God and praising him. She's magnifying him. She was rejoicing in him as she magnifies him. But, but why, Mary? Why do you want to give us a song that, that makes much of God? Why are you saying these things in front of Elizabeth? Why are you uttering these words? Why are you delighting in God? Why do you feel the need to make much of him with what you're about to say? Well, the song is going to give us some reasons. So no, number two, second, Mary's song is personal. That's verses 48 and 49. In the next several lines, Mary praises God for what he has done personally for her. For he hath regarded the low, look at verse 48, the lowest state of his handmaiden. Notice uh, she says, all generations uh, shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. 
Now, there's a lot of bad ideas and, and wrong ideas about Mary because some of this has been exaggerated. And I think sometimes, um, as Christians who aren't Roman Catholics, we can be afraid of saying nice things about Mary because people have said some wrong things about Mary, right? In fact, some, when I grew up, sometimes when I would hear a Christmas sermon about Mary, they would talk so much about the fact that she was a sinner, she kind of sounded like Jezebel because they were afraid to say anything nice about her. Now, Mary is not going to help you in your relationship with God. She's not going to help you get closer to Jesus. If you want to pray, we can pray directly to God. We're priests. All that's true. But she's also a pretty special person. I mean, look at what she gets to do. Let's, we don't have to gloss over that because we're afraid of doctrinal error. We should be as honest as the Bible is. And the idea of calling her Blessed Mary, the Blessed Virgin, comes from Luke. Actually, Mary says that's what people are going to call her, right? It's okay to acknowledge what God is doing with her is just incredible. The favor that she has, by grace, of course, by mercy, undeserved. But the favor that she has from God is just amazing at this responsibility that she has. Notice this, it's very ironic. She is low, but will be remembered by people forever. Wait, what? Who are the people we think of that get remembered forever? We think of celebrities, billionaires, world leaders, and politicians, right? Not people of low estate. Now, she may not be remembered by the world forever, Nero maybe never even heard of her. But she would be remembered by God's people forever because of her part in God's story. There was something special about her. You don't make the Roman times for getting married or being betrothed to a carpenter. Right? No one wants to like get into your inner circle because you're going to marry some carpenter in their day. And yet, she's going to be remembered forever. Why? Even though she's of low estate. Why? Well, this is uh, what God does when he intervenes in our story. He takes what is insignificant, and sometimes precisely because it is insignificant, he can use it. Remember what Paul said. uh, Paul said that God actually is sort of strategic in doing this. Paul says that we carry the gospel around in, in clay pots. He's describing uh, these jars, or if you're going to go to a market in the first century, they wouldn't, you wouldn't buy one. You would buy like 13, right? It's like those, those uh, plastic uh, to-go containers. Um, my wife doesn't buy one. She buys like, a big pack of them because I lose them, and I have like, no idea where they go. And you get them in a pack, and they're really cheap. And that's what the clay pots were like. Now, in, in their day, it wasn't because the husbands were always losing them. It's because they broke so easy. So you don't want to go all the way to the market and get one clay pot and take it back home. So they're very cheap, very cheaply made, don't last a long time. And that's how Paul talks about the apostles. He says we're a bunch of clay pots, and in these clay pots, God has deposited the gospel. Well, that sounds like a really dumb strategy, God. Why would you do that? So that, Paul says, I'm paraphrasing, all the credit goes to God, not the clay pots. In other words, God has deposited his truth in very weak people, and God's messengers, teachers, and elders, and pastors, and missionaries, we're, we're people that recognize our weakness so that God gets credit and glory for doing so. And this is what he's done with Mary. He's taken someone that is low and made her significant because she is low, because she is humble. 
Because she's the kind of person that when God blesses her, she starts singing to God and not talking about herself. This is how Christianity works. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. You want to be important in God's kingdom? Poor in spirit. That's the first requirement. That is to see yourself as impoverished before God. God says, if you're going to be in my kingdom and do something great, then go read the Sermon on the Mount. You can't have too much confidence in your own significance. Like the opposite of what the leadership books tell you. And this is what God is doing with Mary. Did you know that God loves people even if they're not successful? That's really good news. Because if you, whether you're a Christian or maybe you're thinking about becoming a Christian, maybe that's why you're here. If you primarily see yourself as a parent, then whether or not you feel successful and fulfilled as a person like 10 years from now will depend on if you feel like you've done a good job as a parent. If you're a student and you're a a smart student, you want to get the scholarships. And as long as you get the scholarships and the grades and the right professors who want to invest in you, you'll feel like a significant person. If you feel like you are a great spouse, then as long as your marriage is going well, you will feel like you are successful. But all of those identities can be cruel taskmasters because all those things can be taken away from you. So if you fail as a parent and you primarily see yourself as a good parent, that's how you've written your story, then you're going to, that, that, that uh, feeling of affirmation, that feeling that you mean something in this life can be totally ripped away from you when your kid uh, gets in trouble the next day. And then all of a sudden your identity is just gone. Or if you're the student and you lose the scholarship or you get a C on a paper um, or, or a D, maybe a D is a nightmare for you, I don't know your identity as someone who is successful in like the academic world, that can just be taken away from you instantly. But here's what's so cool about following Jesus. That if he is the Lord of our life, if we worship him, if we give ourselves to him, if we find our identity in him, when we fail and we do, instead of our identity being taken away, he forgives us. Now that's a radically different way to live. If you're a Christian, I wonder if you've ever thought about it like that. These other idols destroy us if we fail them. But when we fail our Lord, and we do, instead of destroying us, he forgives us and draws us closer into our relationship with him. So Mary is low, but God raises her up. Notice also God is holy, verse 49, and yet he does great things. Even for unholy people. Does that confuse you a little bit? I tell people um, in in evangelistic conversations, if you're going to decide to not be a Christian and say no to Jesus, you you, you should have a really, really good reason to do so. He claimed to be God. He did a bunch of miracles. Even his worst enemies during his life admitted that he went in towns and rid them of diseases. And then he claimed to die and rise from the dead to give you a relationship with God. And the very city in which he was publicly executed is where this religion started based on the idea that he rose from the dead in front of all these people he was executed in front of. Now, if you're going to say no to him, you've got to have a really good reason to say no to him. And here's a terrible reason to say no to Jesus. Some people say, I don't want to become a Christian because I don't measure up. But here's the thing, not measuring up is precisely what qualifies you to be a Christian. 
He is holy. And yet this holy one saves his unholy people. You know, Jesus said in, a, in one conversation, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance. And when we should understand that, if you've ever tried to reconcile with a self-righteous person, it's really hard to get them to repent. Why? Because self-righteous people don't think they need something to repent of. You've met those people, right? Reconciliation is hard <laughs> with self-righteous people. So God's, or Jesus said, I didn't come to call um, the righteous to repentance. I came to call the sinners to repentance. This is why I'm eating with these people that I'm eating with, Jesus is saying. And then he goes on to say this. He gives this little illustration. Those, they, that, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Tell, if, you, if, you're, if you're saying tonight, if you tell me that you're not ready to be a Christian because you don't measure up, that's sort of like saying I'm not ready to go to the cancer specialist until I get rid of this lymphoma. No. No, no. If you don't admit that you have it, you're not going to get into the specialist. Your lymphoma is what qualifies you to see the cancer specialist. And your realization that you don't measure up morally, your realization that you've sinned your whole life against God, that you carry around all this guilt and shame, that realization does not disqualify you from being a Christian. It qualifies you to take the first step to saying yes to Jesus. See, Christmas is the good news that you don't have to become good to be helped by a holy God. Christmas is the good news that God is so good and so holy and so merciful that that spills out in such a way that it goes to unholy, unrighteous people. That's what Christmas is about. And notice third in verses 50 through 55 that Mary's song is not just personal, but that it extends to other people. It it extends beyond her to the people of God. Verse 50, Mary begins to generalize her praise. It's not just that he's done great things to me, but notice verse 50, this subtle transition where it becomes corporate. His mercy is on them, and not just them, but them of generation to generation. So now Mary zooms out and stops talking about just what God has done for her and begins to talk about what God has done for everyone. Mary's song extends to others. Verses 40, or 54 to 55, when they finish the song, it ends on this high note of praising God for his faithfulness, keeping his promises. But before that, in verses 50 through 53, my favorite part of the song, there's this uh, set of amazing contrasts. Verses 50 through 53. The first contrast begins in verse 50. Look down at your Bibles. God reaches out his gentle hand of mercy. He's merciful to people. That, that is, he holds back. Uh, what they deserve. He doesn't dish out punishments, even though people have, have earned those punishments. But then verse 51, same God, okay? Same God, uh, but his arm is the arm of a warrior that destroys. Now, wait a second. How can God be the one who extends mercy and the God who violently scatters, displaces the proud. He's being merciful to bad people, and he's going to war against bad people at the same time, right? Because mercy is for bad people. You can't have mercy unless you've committed a crime. 
So it's not that God's merciful to the good ones and, and he scatters the bad ones. It's, it's that he's merciful to sinners and he scatters sinners. The same God who shows mercy is this one who destroys. How can God do this at the same time? Well, because there's two kinds of people in view. Now, it's not good and bad, right? But there are people who sinners, look, at, look close at your Bibles, that fear him. Not good people, not righteous people, not perfect people, not put together people, not well-adjusted people. They're sinners, but they fear him. They are the recipients of mercy. And the, the ones that he, that he scatters, the ones where he, he's strengthening his arm, in other words, he's, he is, is showing off the fact that he is a warrior, the ones that he defeats are proud. And not just the externally proud, but those, are proud, those who are proud even in the imagination of their hearts. Isn't this interesting? That, that, that how, you, how you are treated by God is not dependent on whether or not you are a sinner. Because we're all a sinner. It depends on if you are going to fear him and be willing, be open to mercy, or if you're going to be proud. If you come to God proud, you get judgment. Isn't this ironic? If you come to God as if you're looking for a job and you tell him, I'm qualified, I belong on your team, God, you should let me ride into your kingdom, you're his enemy and he destroys you. But if you come to God in this other way, God, I don't deserve to be your kingdom, in your kingdom. I don't deserve to be a citizen here. I don't deserve to be in your family. Well, the next thing you know, God is drawing up adoption papers. Those who fear him receive mercy despite their sin. But those who stubbornly cling to their righteousness in their pride will receive his judgment. If you think God owes you something, you get his judgment. But when you begin to recognize he doesn't owe you anything, well, that's when he will give you everything. That is the paradox of getting into the faith, of becoming a Christian. Mary understands this, that this same God can do both. You see, God's mercy is available to everyone, but it's only given to those who realize that they need it. And and this is why you can't just um, sort of slide into the faith. No one can just slide into becoming a Christian. You can't say, well, I'm going to start coming to church. I'm, I'm going to put my kids in the, in the school. No, no, you can put your kids in the school. Go ahead. Um, I'm, going to do, I'm going to hang out with better friends. I'm going to start watching uh, my language. I'm going to start watching uh, this and this and this. And then I'm going to start this uh, self-improvement project. And when I get to a certain point, um, th- then when I feel good enough about myself, when I'm well put together enough, then God will accept me. No, friend, that's, that is not how it works. You are setting yourself up to be rejected by God. Because he resists the proud. What does the apostle say? He gives grace to the humble. To the humble. You see, God doesn't meet anyone halfway. And as long as we convince ourselves that we have God on the hook, then we don't get his mercy and forgiveness. Isn't this precisely what we see in the Bible? Follow these, follow these contrasts. Verse 51, God scatters the proud. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. It was at the height of him feeling like he was a put-together person that he lost everything and, and turned into, quite literally, an animal. 
Verse 52, God dethrones those who seek to rise to power. Isn't this, happened? Isn't this what happened with Haman? Verse 52, God exalts those of low degree. Think of the one time Jesus ever promised someone, like verbally, they would, he would see them in paradise. I mean, that'd be pretty cool, right? That would kind of be a booster to your assurance. Jesus appears to you physically and says, I will see you in heaven. Wouldn't that be a little bit comforting? He told that to a criminal who had earned the death penalty. That's who he told it to. Jesus spent a lot of time rebuking some polished, very well put together people. But none of them heard that. No. When Jesus died on the cross, he made the way for people to come to God, not on the basis of their status, but rather on the basis of their humble willingness to receive God's mercy. Verse 53, don't you love it? God fills the hungry. God fills the hungry. Also referenced in the Sermon on the, on the Mount. This is why Paul could be sitting in a Roman prison. He wasn't eating three delicious meals a day, I guarantee you. And could write to the Philippians that I am full, I have all, and abound. That's not because he just finished his lobster. Well, how do we explain that then? Mary's song. God fills the hungry. He gives contentment to those who can't find any contentment in their external circumstances simply by a relationship with him. Verse 53, God sends the rich away empty. Think of the rich young ruler. This is going to happen in the Gospel of Luke later on. He gets to talk to Jesus, but he goes away sad precisely because he thought he had earned a right to talk to Jesus. Let's be clear then, Christmas is not a demand to morally get down to business and become a big enough person that heaven takes notice of you. But Christmas is rather an invitation to be honest about how small you really are than believing that God sees you anyway and has come down himself to save you. Verses 54 and 55, who receives God's mercy, all of Abraham's offspring. This doesn't just mean people who would believe who related to Abraham, but Paul expands this out in Galatians 3 to all of Abraham's spiritual sons. That is anyone who believes on Christ, Jew or Gentile. Galatians 3 verse 7, Romans 9 verse 6. So Mary's song then is a reminder of what Christmas is all about. It's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a path for us to show us how we respond to this amazingly good news of Jesus coming. And the birth of Jesus is this. It is a call to praise. The birth of Jesus is a call for us to be delighted in what God has done to save us and to let that delight, to let that rejoicing spill over into magnifying, to praising God for what he has done. How do we do this? Well, we praise God personally in our time of personal worship. It is ironic because during a busy time like the Christmas season, we have so many activities, so many distractions that our personal spiritual disciplines can slide. When in reality, if we really are giving our mind to what God has done in Christ, our personal spiritual discipline should be on all cylinders. We have more to pray about during this season. We have more to praise God about. If we have a gratitude journal going, we should have more entries, not less entries. There's more stuff to glory and to revel in as we read the story of Scripture and think about what God has done to save us, even though we didn't deserve it. We praise by gathering with God's people. Christmas, ironically, can be a time where it's very distracting when you're at church because you have so many appointments, so many parties, so many goodies to make, so much stuff to spend our money on or sometimes waste our money on that 
meeting together with God's people and worshiping can sort of become a distraction when it really should be most meaningful. We praise by following Jesus even when it's hard because obedience is connected to our praise. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And by the way, Mary didn't just sing this song and go out and live however she wanted to live. No. She sang the song of praise, and then what did she do? She made some really hard decisions to follow God, as Pastor Tyler talked about a couple weeks ago. Her life didn't get easier with the incarnation. It got harder. And yet she praised. Why? Because praise is connected to our obedience to Christ, even when it's very uncomfortable to obey him. Praising Christians are obedient Christians. And disobedient Christians who pretend to praise are really just fake Christians. And then we praise by evangelizing. Hearts full of praise will lead to gospel sharing. We're not going to avoid our lost friends and family members that we get an opportunity to spend time with this week. We will exploit in a good way those opportunities to have gospel conversations. If someone ever tells you, don't you think it's, it's sad that uh, Christmas is so, um, you know, covered up with all this commercialism. That's a great opportunity. Instead of just saying, yeah, yeah, it's true. That's a great opportunity to say, yeah, what do you think it is about? Where do you think this came from anyway? Let me, can I share with you what I think it's about? I mean, this is a great time of year to get in those conversations with people that may be harder to get in at other times of the year. A lot of people have, that have never been to church in their life, never touched a Bible in their life, have never heard the gospel explained to them, have nativity sets for like decor. I mean, are we going to waste those opportunities if our hearts are full of praise? No, I think hearts full of praise won't just lead to us coming to church, hiding in this building and talking about Jesus to other Christians who won't be offended. Hearts full of praise will lead us to take difficult steps to share Jesus with those who oppose him. If we delight in him and want to magnify him like Mary's song shows us we need to do. Now you may say, well, I'm not a Christian at all, so none of this has anything to do with me. I don't think that's true. You know, delight and our enjoyment and, and noticing the beauty of what Jesus has done for us is actually one of the main ways that God draws us to Christ. No one comes to the gospel and begins repenting and believing just because they thought the gospel was interesting. No, the gospel takes hold of someone. This story of what Christ has claimed to do for you, to take you to heaven, to forgive you of your sin, that, that story becomes beautiful before you believe it. That's one of the ways that God may be drawing you to himself. So if you think, well, I'm not a Christian yet, so I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this, pay attention to the story of Jesus. Pay attention to the story of Jesus and see if that may introduce you to a relationship with God that you thought you would never meet. It's possible that he'll do that in your heart. So Jesus has come. Jesus has come. And how do we respond to this? with praise, that is delighting in him and what he's done, and then by making much of him. So this week, as we celebrate Christmas, let's have hearts full of praise. And let's all stand.